Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to a special edition of The Learning Curve. We think it's always a special edition of The Learning Curve, but this one feels a little bit different. Here we are. Today is March 13th that you'll be listening to this, and we are right in the middle, Gerard, of reckoning with COVID-19. So it's here, it's upon us, and it certainly has a lot of implications for education. Um, what, what are you thinking right now, Gerard? Where are you at? Where's your family at? What's going on? Well, our family right now uh, is impacted at least at the higher education level. Uh, as many of you know, my wife is a professor at UVA Law School, and the president of the university uh, recently announced to the UVA community that we would move to a virtual learning environment uh, for the time being and that we would assess what uh, are the next steps you know, a few weeks from now. But that's not only at Virginia, it's also, you know, happening at Virginia Tech and, of course, across the country. So at one level, it's, you know, as an educator who's very interested just in people, this is a major disruption, uh, not for faculty alone, but for the millions of students who are going to be impacted either because they're on spring break and they learn through email or through television that, you know, maybe you can't return to campus to retrieve your items or if you can, you got to do so pretty quickly and then move over. So we're seeing that at one level, but I also say that from the, from the position of, uh, of, of privilege and the fact that if our oldest daughter were in college right now, she could come home and that uh, we are a dual income household and so we could make ends meet. But there are a number of faculty members, students and families, uh, including staff, who are going to be impacted uh, by the decision. And not to say it's a good or bad decision. I'm not making a value judgment. But just, you know, dealing with the fact that that's going to take place uh, across campuses. And it's just something that uh, we as educators just have to keep in mind. And, you know, we've, uh, we've got a lot of work to do. It's, so, And how do you feel about preparation, the ability to actually deliver online learning. I think in many ways, higher ed is probably better poised than, than the K to 12 space. Uh, but I'm really curious to get your take, your wife's take on like, is anything really going to happen between now and, you know, up here in, in Massachusetts, a, a lot of the universities are saying, you know, we'll see you, we'll see you in September. Um, do, you, do you think that there's any space for learning to take place? And then what are the impacts of that if, if it doesn't? So here's an interesting juxtaposition between professional schools and schools of arts and sciences. So in many professional schools, the traditional uh, going to class, let's say between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. has been a tradition in some cases, you know, for over 50 to 100 years. Same thing with medical school. Uh, and in the schools of education, for example, there's a mix so you can have a doctoral program that's, you know, 50 percent online, 50 percent in class or at our school of professional uh, and continuing education. The majority of the classes, in fact, are um, are online. Now, arts and science is somewhat similar to what we've seen with professional schools, that their classes are taking place in, uh, on campus or over here beyond grounds. And it's not just UB, I think it's just across the board. But all of a sudden, you're going to have professors, some of them who haven't uh, ever taught a course online, uh, who haven't taken any courses through professional development, uh, no fault of their own, is just not a part of the pedagogy for the university. So it's going to be a learning curve for professors, it's going to be a learning curve uh, for students. 
But for others who are online, it's just, uh, you know, business as usual. What I see this is as a great, it's going to be a great learning opportunity for two sectors. One, the online sector who's been doing this in higher ed for a really long time, uh, including those who are for-profit, the nonprofits, the privates, and the others. We can take a look and see, you know, what they've been doing, uh, particularly with adult learners who have full-time jobs or other obligations. Number two, here's an opportunity for the social entrepreneurs to peek around the corner and say, you know what? We may be out of school three months, but maybe we're not going to be in school on traditional basis until next January. Who knows? So I'm excited also about the role that social entrepreneurs will play in working with government officials, educators, and others to create a, uh, and I don't say this the majority way, but a brave new world. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's it's an inflection point. It's really something to watch. And I feel like it, it's, a, it's a jarring experience, right? So a part of me wonders about just bandwidth, literally, internet bandwidth. Will we, mm-hmm. will we all be on our devices at one time, mom and dad or mom and mom or whomever working from home and two kids on the computers trying to make it all happen? This is just, um, it's going to be a test of, of many things. But I think you're right. It's going to be a learning experience. Um, I have a, a friend and colleague who this morning posed the question to me. This person is, is younger than I, so I appreciated the way the way it was put. The question was, you know, you've seen a lot, Kara. <laughs> how, how, how does this feel? Is this different than things that you've seen before? And and I, I was having a conversation with my husband last night, and the answer is like, yeah, it feels utterly different. This is unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. And my husband, who's in, he, who's a, a doctor. Um, you know, he's, he's seeing sort of the, um, you know, I keep asking him, like, are we all panicking? Are we all panicking? And his answer is, well, yes, <laughs> we are all panicking, but there's, there are things here, there are precautions we have to take, there are measures that we have to take. And, and yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, we the, the, um, the infrastructure is not as prepared as we would like it to be. And of course, we're also thinking about our kids too. I'm thinking about my own kids and thinking about, the kids um, who go to the schools that I on the board that I sit on the the, mm-hmm. the schools that we oversee, mm-hmm. and one of the things that's really profound for us, I would say, unlike in higher ed, um, too many of us are just utterly ill prepared for any kind of online learning. Just utterly ill prepared. It's it's not going to happen. Um, but we're thinking also about the community impact. So what about the children who who eat two meals a day at school? And if all the schools close, where are they going to get their meals? And and are we going to open one school for everybody to come to? Are we going to send kids home with food and, and, and trust that somehow it will last? How how exactly is that going to work? And how can we be, you know, educators, especially in the K-12 arena, are are doing a lot more than just the job of teaching and learning in the classroom? Um, and, and, and then there's just the, the fact that parents are going home and uh, parents going to have kids at home, and what are you going to do if you don't have care, if you have real little ones at home and you don't have support, or if your elderly relatives are the only support that you have and they are indeed the most vulnerable? These are all really big questions that I think we all can – it's easy to overlook when those who you know, have the decision-making power, they're, they're wrestling with all of these really tough, important questions. You know, the and, point you – no, go ahead. No, please. 
Well, the point you mentioned about uh, free and reduced price lunch students, many of them, of course, who may have one, two meals and a snack as their, their major meal of the day. Um, I live in uh, central part of Virginia, and so between Albemarle County and Charlottesville Public Schools, just talking to parents and a few friends, uh, there's already a conversation about families uh, volunteering to drive uh, food to either homes or to certain places so that children will have an opportunity to have access to meals. Uh, you also got to work now concern yourself with the good altruism, the also the stigma aspect that all of a sudden, all of a sudden people will know that, yeah, you're the, the family where people are sending food to, so we'll have to figure out how to do that. But here's a good opportunity for us to use civil society principles. You know, I can't expect my superintendent and school board or even our school principal to do this alone. Uh, at my daughter's school, I saw my principal yesterday and said, listen, you know, let me know what I can do as Gerard, just not as, you know, the dad of, of, of two of your of your students. What can I do as Gerard? I've got a social network. I've got friends. I know a few things about state uh, governance and implementation. What can I do? And I've talked to other parents in the parking lot. And so all of us bring different skill sets to the table. And so for me, this is a civil society moment. And I just think we as parents, we as reformers, we've been doing this for a long time. This is a good chance for us to do it at a broader level. Absolutely. It's an opportunity to step up. I, I have to I have to give a shout out to um, the, the principal at my kids school who, who said something I thought was really profound. So my kids are in a my kids are in a K to eight Montessori school, which is, you know, pretty cool. But one mm-hmm. of the things that, that she and the teachers were pointing out to the parents is like, you know, it's not like you, you all have Montessori works and manipulatives at home and you're like you're gonna you're gonna carry home the you know the counting beads and all of that stuff and she said and we're not equipped for online learning we will be thinking about what what children can be doing at home and what we can ask you to do with your children but the most important thing we feel we can do right now is figure out how we maintain community ties if this happens over an extended period of time. So our priority will be to ensure that all members of our school community are connected to one another and to the greater community, helping one another, you know, because um, because who knows what this, gonna, this is going to bring. And hopefully we're all um, sort of um, planning for the worst, expecting the worst, and and we'll, and it'll be a little milder than, than we're all thinking right now at this point. It's the it's sort of that great unknown, that anxiety inducing, like we've we've not been here before. Um, That's so true. So true. And so I'd also love to get your take because, you know, a lot going on in the Twitterverse um, and, and probably in your own uh, professional circles as well, Gerard, about like, hey, is this a moment for homeschooling? So, you know, homeschooling is one of those things that we we talk so much about private school choice and charter schools and all this great stuff on this program, but we haven't talked a lot about homeschooling. And homeschooling has just the number of, of families that are choosing to homeschool um, in different in different ways has just exploded in this country in recent years. And um, and it's the, the people who are homeschooling are a diverse bunch of people, you know, doing it for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, what do you think? Could this be a moment for more families to sort of explore if that's an option for them? 
The short answer is yes. Uh, I definitely see it uh, uh, as such. You know, I think about a homeschool community in the D.C. area. I had a chance to talk to a mom. Uh, in fact, she went to the University of Virginia. She taught in the public school system. Her and her husband decided they wanted to homeschool their children, as you said, for a host of reasons. And they found several other families who wanted to do the same thing. Well, guess what? Today, they have a 700-family co-op in Washington, D.C., and when you start doing the math and adding in the numbers in terms of parents making financial contributions to you know, purchase books now in bulk, uh, there's a, a scale of economy that works in their favor. So those things are taking place now. I've seen or read on Twitter. I'm hearing conversations of people who are reaching out to their friends who are homeschoolers and they're saying, what should we start doing? Because all of a sudden my daughter or son's school is going to close. And now I'm quote unquote going to homeschool. Now we know that our teachers are still going to be involved, but for all intents and purposes, you're in a home now having to educate your students and you still have to do your own uh, full-time job or part-time job. So I think the um, homeschooling piece is going to be really interesting. I think, I think it's going to be coming more into effect. And I think it's also, you know, to the point that you made, we, we rarely, I think, so few people, if you're not homeschooling, realize what a sacrifice it is, because in many cases you're sacrificing um, one person's income. If you could be a, 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 you know, family, a dual income family, it's mm-hmm. a huge commitment of time and passion. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking right now is just like, oh my goodness, how am I going to keep my children away from screens? Because <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I am not usually very successful at that when we are, for example, on vacation for long stretches. And these are the things that, that become really real, really fast. And, and the screens can be useful if they're doing something for work or if there's a safe way to connect them um, to a learning community or to a community of friends. But but man, that's, you know, I've got little ones that are still into Paw Patrol, Gerard, and that, that can't be happening all day. Um, and I've also got, you know, there's anxiety among the children, which is something that I think that every parent probably um, feels and can recognize. Um, I, I'll share that my 10-year-old's daughter, my 10-year-old daughter's greatest anxiety was, oh my goodness, mom, am I really going to have to be home with my two brothers all the time and not see my friends? Because that's just yes. untenable. <laughs> in her exactly. mind, that can't happen. You know, I said, well, you know, you can, I'm sure you could find, we could spend time outside. Um, I, I'm also telling myself, uh, at least up here in the great, in the Northeast, we're pretty lucky that this is happening as things are store, are starting to warm up a bit. Otherwise, you know, we would absolutely be locked inside in the frigid cold. But um, no, it's, it's going to be an interesting moment, a lot to watch. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about. Uh, going forward. And I, like you, I'm really interested to see what um, what social entrepreneurs are going to be doing and what people are going to be writing about these experiences. I expect the blogosphere and the Twitter, Twitter sphere to be, uh, to be pretty interesting. So, Since you mentioned homeschooling, one source um, I'd say take a look at. So uh, there are two scholars. One is named John, James Davidson Hunter, and the other one is Ryan Olson. And they work at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at UVA. And uh, they published a book called The Content of Their Character, uh, Inquiries into... Yeah, in, oh, you've, you've, in fact, you've heard of it. I Inquiries know it, yeah. into the very, uh, verities of moral formation. There's actually a chapter. Uh, in that book focused on homeschooling. So, you know, one place to look. There you go. See, listeners, here on The Learning Curve, you not only get to 
listen to us just banter about whatever we feel like, you get to you get some good reading recommendations from our friend Gerard Robinson as well. So coming up, we are going to be speaking with Anna Egalite uh, right after this. Welcome back. We are here with Anna Egalite, Assistant Professor in the Department of Educational Leadership, Policy, and Human Development, the College of Education at North Carolina State University. Um, she's, a, she's a very decorated person. She holds a PhD in Ed Policy from the University of Arkansas, yay, a Master's in Elementary Education from the University of Notre Dame, and a Bachelor's in Elementary of Education from St. Patrick's College in Dublin, Ireland. And of course, many of you know Anna from her postdoctoral fellowship at the PEPG, the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University. We are so excited to have you with us today, Anna. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kara. It's great to be on the podcast. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, and nobody is going to be surprised by this. You might be surprised to know that you are originally from Ireland. Yes. <laughs> where, yes. where, by the way, I hear the school choice, uh, the International School Choice and Reform Conference will be next year. So we all yes, need to start January. working on that. That's yeah, right. January. We, we should be clear by that. Okay. We should be clear by that and all ready to travel. But um, so I think it'll be really interesting for our listeners to figure out just first of all, how you became interested in K-12 education reform generally, and then a little bit about your own background, your own educational experiences, and, and what you've observed about the differences between what it was like growing up and going to school in Ireland and what it's like teaching about school here. Sure. Happy to give some background information. I um, did a program called ACE, which is the Alliance for Catholic Education. It's structured very similarly to Teach for America. So it's like a Catholic version of that. It's uh, run through the University of Notre Dame. And that's what um, prompted my move to the United States. And um, through that program, I was teaching at a Catholic school in Florida in Pinellas County. And if you follow education policy research at all, the Tampa Bay Times did a big expose a few years ago on the Pinellas County public schools, um, which were in really bad shape um, in many ways, but particularly that the students' performance um, on tests and that. So that, those were the students. They were mostly coming from the Pinellas County public schools to our Catholic school. And I was a teacher there, a fourth grade teacher um, for two years. I had been a teacher before that in a Catholic public school in Ireland. And so it was interesting for me to see the differences between the Catholic schools in both countries. Um, the sort of biggest surprise was that these were otherwise similar families, but for the ones in Florida, um, sometimes I, I definitely remember I had one student um, from a single parent household, uh, paying the tuition was a real struggle. And it blew my mind a little bit because I didn't know that before I got here that you couldn't just choose the school you wanted to attend. That That's how it was when I was growing up and, and a teacher in Ireland, um, that the state provides for the education. They don't necessarily provide the education um, for all students. And so I found that a little confusing that people here didn't have the same choices. And that's really what prompted me to become interested in the issue, um, to start reading a little bit about private choice programs, charters, and really what it is about the, the rationale for assigning public schools that it is here and why that system was preferred to the one in which I grew up. Yeah, I mean, and I think that um, in many ways, I wish that uh, I could sort of have you at a cocktail party. Well, maybe I can someday. So because so many of our listeners, right, um, 
will will be aware of the fact that in a lot of ways the U.S. is an outlier in terms of you know what we view as public versus private education and and what the state can control um, in terms of parent choice. Um, but but that's really something I think that so many. Um, Folks who who don't live in the world of education policy, which is most people, um, you know, it would they would probably be really surprised to hear that. So that's a really useful sort of frame. Thank you. Um, but so you you've also done work internationally that doesn't pertain to Ireland or the U.S. You've conducted research on school voucher programs in India. So I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about the lessons you observed from studying their K to twelve education system and what choice is like in the world's largest democracy. Yeah, for sure. That was a fascinating project that my advisor, Patrick Wolf, brought me on board when I was a graduate student, and we continued working on it because we were tracking the students over many years. Um, just for context, um, so yes, it's said in India, where about a third of the population are living in poverty, but a third is illiterate. Um, and there's this prevalence of low-cost private alternatives to the government schools there. And those are found in not just in the urban areas, but also in the rural areas. Um, and they're popular because the teacher absenteeism rates are much lower in the private schools, even though they're fee-paying schools. Um, they have longer days, better hygiene, and lower rates of multi-grade teaching, where you would have kids of mixed ages all in the same room. Um, our study was focused in a slum area. It's about 20 square kilometers. It's a highly urbanized slum area. It's a Shadara, which is situated in East Delhi in India. And it was a, a run by a UK charity called Absolute Return for Kids, or ARC for short. And they provided vouchers for students um, who wanted to transition to a private school. So it was set up as an experiment, which is always a researcher's dream, right? Because you want to be able to make causal claims about um, what happened to the kids as a result of that. Um, participating in that in that program and we tracked them for four years after they were randomly assigned to either be received to be offered a voucher or not um, and we found big effects in, in English language in particular in their English language scores um, large positive impacts I think a huge part of that is because the private schools are usually offered through the English medium so that's the language of instruction um, whereas in the um, government schools it's more so likely to be a local dialect or, or Hindi um, and so that was um, the biggest effect that we observed. Um, interestingly, we found um, not statistically significant, but leading negative effects on Hindi. Uh, um, so essentially null, uh, when, when it's not significant, we can say it's zero. And then in uh, math, also no effects. So it, it was really driven by the English scores. And that was overall. Um, we also broke it out at effects for different subgroups of students and interestingly found that the females in particular who use the voucher benefited the greatest. And, and were these children Anna, who otherwise might not have been in school um, in, in some of these private schools? I mean, I remember James Tooley's work, you know, private schools for the poor. Um, are, are the children who were enrolling in these programs using the voucher, would they have otherwise been in a government? I mean, you can assume that they would have, but would they were yeah. they actually going? I guess is the question. Yeah, we don't have information on their attendance to show. Well, how you know were they really showing up? To, and the kids in the control group were they really showing up to their government school? But they were all enrolled um, for the most part in school. So it, it wasn't a comparison of you know a private education versus no education. It was it was private versus the public alternative. Um, but you know it is interesting to consider the context. Like these are families living in extreme poverty, and it was fascinating to do research in such a different part of the world and think about the kind of variables we had to control 
control for. Like we had information on um, whether the families had access to a private bathroom or whether it was a shared toilet among neighbors or whether there was no toilet access and it was just, you know, on the street. Um, things like whether they owned a motorbike or a scooter, whether they had access to a fridge. And so these indicators of family wealth um, were just so different to work with and consider like the challenges that, that these kids were facing. Interesting. Anna Gerard, how are you? Great. Great to hear your voice. You too. For the listening audience, Anna was uh, very kind enough uh, April of last year to sit on a panel that I moderated at the uh, National Summit for the Center for Advancing Opportunities. So she did a great job there. And of course, we know she will do a great job here. I want to follow up on a question uh, that Kara just asked you, because it's one that I hear in the United States. I'm wondering if it's what you hear in India. That maybe the students in India who are doing well is because the people cream scam the best students and therefore they're doing better, not because of choice, but because of you have high performing students. We hear that here in the United States. What's the talk about this in India? Yeah, I mean, it's a real concern in studies that would be using, say, a pre-existing data set or just relying on observational data. But when you have an experiment like this, all the kids who are applying are low income because this is a targeted program. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's a lottery. So it's pure chance that's determining who gets in and who doesn't. And so across the two groups, we can look at all of this rich control variables. I was just talking about things like their indicators of family wealth and the count of adults living in their house and all these things to compare across the treatment and the comparison group. And we can see that the, on average, they're, they're very similar, um, statistically identical. So the effects that we observe are can't be driven by differences in the characteristics of the students. It's driven by the differences in their experience experiences of their access to to the intervention, in this case, access to private school. Well, it's good to know that the apple to apple comparisons you and your team have done here in the U.S. is also taking place in India. And so that we hear that argument domestically, they can't try to export it uh, to India and elsewhere. You know, what's interesting, you know, we're now in uh, in March, 55 years ago this month, uh, there was a young guy uh, named Winahan, uh, who had released a report which talked about the structure of, at that time, Negro families in the United States. And it caused a great deal of consternation within the academic and policy community. And he basically talked about the role that families play and the structure of families play in education. There were questions uh, raised about uh, its impact on educational outcome, everything else. So we fast forward 55 years, you know, you're doing some great work. When you look at school choice policies and the influence of family backgrounds on intergenerational economic mobility, what does your research tell us about the impact of private choice on family mobility? Yeah, so the Coleman report was certainly a touchstone in American education policy. So this is back in the 60s. And I had a chance to write an essay on the anniversary of the report where I was able to dig in a little bit deeper into what we've learned since then about the role of education and the role of family background in determining things like student long-term outcomes and economic mobility. And it's absolutely true. Like the the, the report at the time concluded that um, family background, fa- things like family structure, parental education, income, and the influence of neighborhoods are really important. And it's true. It's been substantiated since then in all kinds of different studies in different locales, different settings. Um, For me, I think what I learned from writing that essay was that schooling and school reforms are a part of 
the solution, but not they can't solve everything. Um, and so for a lot of kids in the United States and elsewhere, growing up poor, it can be dire. And the consequences of that have serious implications for their prospects of intergenerational mobility. So schooling reforms are, are part of the solution and they need to be big and innovative and not just tinkering around the edges because the consequences are severe. Um, so, yeah, so I think Social policy needs to target a lot of different types of influences at the same time if we're hoping to expand opportunity for everybody. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about the fact that Coleman, Moynihan and others were talking about this 55 plus years ago that we're still having a conversation today, speaks to the aspect of poverty and what I call the laundry list of liabilities that often come along with it. And we're at least glad to see that parental choice is one pathway to move people from promise to prosperity. You know, you mentioned earlier about growing up in Ireland. Let's fast forward now to your time here in the States. Uh, you worked in Florida, earned a doctorate from a university in Arkansas, and now you're at North Carolina State uh, as a professor. You know, tell the folks what you've learned about U.S. and K-12 education policy by living, studying, and working in the American South. Yeah, I mean, it's a very different context than growing up in Europe, that's for sure. And being a part of the PhD program in Arkansas was a really nice way to be sort of immersed in a different culture and, and learning in a very supportive environment. Um, so I, for anybody who's interested in pursuing studying higher, um, a higher degree, going for a doctorate and, and studying education policy, um, the University of Arkansas was a great experience for me. Um, the mentors that I had there were very supportive and, and really pushed me to um, publish early and, and often. And that's really the, the key to being successful in academia. Um, so being in the South, it sort of gave me a, a nice perspective on the struggles that American schools face, both public and private, the different challenges that vary by the community context. So schools in the Northeast are facing very different challenges than schools in rural areas, um, urban versus rural, just because um, a lot of the um, education policy literature does focus on urban populations. That doesn't mean that the challenges faced by those living in rural communities are any less. They're just um, so I think it's helpful to expose yourself to lots of different contexts and cultures and um, round out your experiences if given the opportunity. No, absolutely. We're always looking to others to emulate what we're doing in the U.S. Based upon the research that you've done internationally, what lessons should we look at from other countries? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that and it's probably self-interested to propose this, but the pairing of researchers with policymakers is a really productive avenue if we want to learn about pilot programs and, and new initiatives that we're trying. Um, so we might see a, a proposal or some um, something that's being implemented in a different country and wonder how it would roll out here. Well, it's a great time to have a conversation with a researcher to say, how might we do this in a way that would allow us to study the effects for our context? Um, so so I'm just thinking about um, small experiments that could be run where there's some element of randomization of who gets access to this nifty program or technology or homework club or whatever it is the intervention that we're trying to import might be. Um, because it's going to work differently in different contexts. It's going to be implemented differently based on the resources and the training and how much people really buy into it and whether they're um, you know, adhering to the policy with fidelity. Um, and so having that research partnership is just so helpful because it allows us to, to measure impact, really allows us to make causal claims. You know, participating in this program caused a change of X. 
um, and just it's so much more defensible than um, pointing just solely to a study or an experience in another country and hoping that we can import it and it will have the same changes here. Last question. You hosted an event in Ireland in January. Just tell the listening audience just a little bit about the event and what you'd like to accomplish. Oh, definitely. Um, it's in January 2021. It's taking place in Dublin. It's the International Conference on School Choice and Reform. It's a very diverse group of researchers from uh, lots of different uh, European countries as well as the United States. Um, we um, alternate whether it's hosted in an international location or in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida is usually the um, United States location. And um, it's a really good conference for um the networking opportunities to talk between sessions and at the meals and receptions with researchers who are studying similar issues, but in very different contexts and legal contexts, political contexts that vary. Um, so I've found it to be a really great um, supportive conference for building a network as a junior scholar and coming up with new ideas and thinking outside the box, getting outside of that U.S. bubble that sometimes only attending U.S.-based conferences can land us in. Um, and we also have travel grants available. So for any Anybody who is interested in applying to the conference, um, every year we do have an application process that's not very cumbersome um, to apply for travel support to ease the costs of attending. So it's, I would highly recommend it. It's a great conference. Well, Anna, thank you for your time today with us and thank you for your commitment to educating the next generation of scholars, principals, teachers and just good people who want to make schools work for everyone. Thanks, Gerard. Thanks, Cara. It's been great to talk with you. And before we leave you today, everyone, we've got the Tweet of the Week apt for these, uh, for these interesting times. This one's from Carrie McDonald, um, at Carrie underscore EDU. She says, Hurricane Katrina led to the unprecedented creation of a nearly all charter school system in New Orleans. Could COVID-19 lead more families to choose education without schooling? And you can read her latest at Forbes. It's called The World's Homeschooling Moment. So good read. We're excited to look at that one. And also, we will be back with you next week, maybe from some bunker hiding away. We're not sure. We'll probably both be at home, that's for sure. Um, we're talking to Raymond Flynn, who is the former U.S. ambassador to the Holy See and former mayor of Boston. He's got a lot of great stories to tell, Gerard, so I know we are both looking forward. Look forward to hearing his voice. It's been a few years since uh, we've been together. Absolutely. All right. Until next week, stay safe. Wash your hands.